Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome back to episode 79 of Apply Filters. Today, Brad and I are going to go over some more listener questions. We've been getting quite a few from everybody. Thank you all for submitting them via Twitter and email. Uh, if you have any questions that you would like to submit, you can go to our website at applyfilters.fm. There's a form there to submit your question, or you can reach out to us in any way that you know how to, whether it's Twitter, email, other websites, etc. We'd love to get your questions. So we've got quite a few to go over today, and we will try to get to all of them. And if we don't, then we've got more episodes coming. Brad, you want to take us away with the first one? First question is from Darren Spence, and he asks, what is your least favorite? favorite part of developing for WordPress and why? Huh. Plugins. Yeah. What? (laughs) Isn't that your whole business? Yes, sir. (laughs) Uh, Let me expand on that a little bit. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I think one of the most, one of the most awesome things about the WordPress industry, world, community, whatever you want to call it today, uh, is the fact that we have such a thriving plugin ecosystem. I mean, there's 50,000 plus plugins that do anything and everything um, from full-blown solutions that transform your website to little tiny things that put quotes on a page. Um, there's a plugin for just about anything and anybody can get into building plugins. It's a free-for-all. I mean, you can you have a plugin you want to build, build it. You can release it for free. Uh, WordPress.org provides a great infrastructure from which to do that. Gets you an opportunity to put in front of people um, and find an audience for it. Uh, it's obviously been successful for us as um, both you and I, Brad, have been able to build successful companies on top of the WordPress plugin industry. But it, it because of the success, it is also sometimes super painful to build plugins within WordPress and build them reliably so that they always work. I mean, I think if you look into any commercial plugin or theme or any any WordPress business, their biggest support burden is probably people having problems on their site using your plugin, your theme, et cetera. And a lot of the time it's because of some kind of conflict with another plugin, whether it is a like a PHP error, if it is notices from another plugin, or if it's simply two plugins clashing in their design or what they're outputting on the front of the page. Basically it's an uncontrolled environment. And sometimes, depending on the day, sometimes it is so brutal, I want to walk away. (laughs) We're like, why do we do this? And then, but most of the time, I mean, most of the time I I genuinely enjoyed it. But if you could think about the difference between building products, free or commercial, in a a controlled environment, think of like uh, a SaaS, Versus building in a free-for-all where you never would know what the environmental variables are, the latter is far more difficult and painful for a lot of obvious reasons. So that's my least favorite part. Yeah, I think I think plugins are like your most favorite part and the least favorite part at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's like uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Sometimes people don't get the last part. Right? <laughs> yeah. The, the responsibility part. Well, and I think um, that it's so common because there's so many different developers out there and it's so easy to release a plugin. Sometimes because it's so easy, you get a lot of plugins that are released. And we see this on the WordPress.org plugin repository 
every single day in plugin submissions. A lot of people are building plugins that I don't want to say that they have no business building plugins because I believe everybody has the opportunity, but they simply don't have the experience to know what they're doing is problematic because this is the first time they've ever released it. You have to, it's a, it's a trial by fire, but it means that there's, there's thousands of those where somebody just built a little thing that was fun and they released it. But then somebody else came along and installed it without knowing that this thing is garbage on the inside, not necessarily by intention, but maybe lack of experience. And then that causes problems. Yeah, this is a whole other kettle of fish, probably. I'm opening up a can of worms here. But (laughs) do you think that the WordPress.org repo should be more, either it should like identify plugins that are, I don't know, somehow identify the ones or, or highlight the fact that certain plugins aren't, you know, following the, the rules or best practices or something, or like, would, I don't know, would that help? So it's, or, or, or it's maybe not tricky. even on the, on the like extreme end of that, maybe like not even let them into WordPress.org and only, and say, you know, go on GitHub until you get better. You know, that's, that's the extreme end. Yeah. I, I'm so not I, saying I'm I can for see it. the I can see the positives <laughs> of, of that. Um, the the official .org policy is basically look anybody deserves the right of being able to release their plugin here. We are not to judge you how well you write your plugin. I mean, yes, there are things that that are disallowed. I mean, for example, you can't put a fatal error in your plugin. That's going to be rejected. Ideally, it doesn't throw PHP notices. Ideally, um, it uses proper prefixing and or namespacing. And as long as you do all of those things, like the rest of the quality of your plugin is not for us to judge. That's the general rule that we go with. So anyways, I guess uh, we'll leave it at that yeah. and not open the So kettle. what's your least favorite part? <laughs> uh, I'm probably going to say like, so this is my favorite part. Again, it's like a favorite part and a least favorite part at the same time. And it's backwards compatibility. You know, having, having to support PHP 5.0 two still is pretty painful for WordPress developers, I think. Like not being able to use um, a lot of the, the features and even PHP 5.3, which is, you know, 10 years old now. That, that's, that's pretty painful. Like you can't use namespaces. I mean, we, we covered all of the, the things that we would get as soon as we're able to drop support for PHP 5.2. We covered that in a, a previous episode. We'll link that up in the show notes, uh, the previous episode that we covered that in. But I think uh, another thing was closures. So the being able to write anonymous functions would be something that we would gain by dropping 5.2 support. So just like all those things, I think, just make it less fun to develop for WordPress, right? And and I, I'm certainly not the first person to say that. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's a pretty popular opinion, right? But like I said... It's also one of the best parts about WordPress, right? That it just works and it doesn't break for people. I guess that I, I said backwards compatibility, but that's not really backwards compatibility, right? That's that's support for PHP 5.2, old versions but of PHP. But that is coming from a commitment to backwards compatibility. Yes, yeah. So I, I, still, I still like backwards compatibility. I mean, I... I've, I wouldn't say that's one of my least favorite parts. I, I, I kind of like the challenge of trying to build something new, but still work works for all of the, anyone that does it the old way kind of thing, you know? 
and then de deprecating things. It's just, I feel like that's just a responsible way of doing development. So I, I kind of like backwards compatibility, but I'm not opposed to, you know, breaking it at some point sure. where it makes sense. Oh, Anyways. Alrighty. Thank you, Darren, for the question. Uh, next one comes from Josh Eby, and he said, I would like to get your thoughts on using Composer and Bower in terms of plugin development. I understand the benefits of Composer when working with a team or using it to manage an entire website, but how can it be used when developing a single plugin? Do you use auto-loading for your classes and your WordPress plugins? Why or why not? So there's a couple of different questions in here. You start, start us off, Brett. Sure. So Composer, why... So how do you use it when you're developing a single plugin? Well, let's give a concrete example. So uh, WP Offload S3, uh, it uses the Amazon AWS or the AWS SDK, right? That's part of the plugin. That's a library that's included in the plugin. We use Composer to manage that, to manage that inclusion in the plugin. So. Uh, I can't remember what's the composer command line thing. Composer uh, something. Composer update. Like if you want to update, if you want to update your libraries. Yeah, so whatever your composer file <laughs> that has the version numbers in it. Like you just change the version number, do a composer update, and it just updates it and commit that to Git. Com commit your composer file to Git, and away you go. So, uh, I mean, that's basically how we use it in our plugin. Do you guys do something similar, Pippin, or? We do, um, not in all of our plugins, but some of them. So one of the, the main examples would be like our Stripe payment gateway, both for Restricted Content Pro and uh, Easy Digital Downloads. Those both rely on the, the Stripe PHP SDK that they provide. And so we, we have that set up with Composer. So anytime that we push out a new update, we can just run Composer update and it goes ahead and, and pulls in the latest SDK from Stripe and sets up all the, the auto loader for it and works great. Um, that's the main time that we use it. We have used it before um, for, for other kinds of dependencies. Say like if we have one of our own shared libraries that we use across plugins, we've used it before um, for pulling those in, pulling submodules in before, but pretty rarely. Honestly, we don't use it very often. Uh, we do have uh, what about some... For, for unit tests? I think we use it for that as well. So when the unit tests run, I think Composer runs as well. Uh, well, we have it, we have it, we do have it set up so it pulls in all of the like the latest version of WordPress, the latest version of, right. of EDD from GitHub, etc. That is all inside of our, our our Travis config for Travis CI. But oh, in, okay. in terms of the rest of like using it to to manage our plugins, we don't use it very much. Yeah, so it is composer.json. Yeah, I was. I was um, in terms of Bower, right. I've never used Bower before. I oh I, yeah. I've never used it. I can't really answer much on that. It, I know it's another package manager. Um, I've, I know of a lot of people that do use it, but I couldn't give any answer on to how to use it or what's the best way to use it. Or Do you use auto-loading for your classes in your WordPress plugins? Why or why not? Uh, only when we only when it's part of a composer install. So like with the Stripe API, for example, whenever, time, whenever you do... Um, Composer update, it actually pulls in the latest version that then all we have to do is load one Stripe PHP file, which then has an autoloader inside of it for the rest of the, the SDK. But that's the only time. We have never built an autoloader into any of our plugins. 
Right. Any any reason for that, or is there is it just just, just uh, well, never originally it? it was because of uh, PHP five two support. I mean, yes, we could we could build like a pseudo auto loader, but it, like a true auto loader, we've never done. I think I think honestly, it's just left over from not doing it for old PHP versions, and it's just we just haven't adapted to to moving in that direction. It has never been that much of a need. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can we can focus on and that we can spend a lot of time and effort on, and auto loading has never been a priority. If you have a great reason for why we should, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the argument for for doing it is so that you're not loading unnecessary files into memory, right? You're you're not making PHP do extra work for for nothing, you know. That's probably the argument, but. I don't know when you're talking about the a plugin, you know, loading a few extra files. I don't know is it really worth all the overhead of adding auto loading uh, for for that, right? I um, I have I not guess, yet been convinced it is. So yeah, if somebody has a, a a case or example of why why it is or or a different example of why there's a significant advantage to it, please do share. Yeah. I, I like I like auto loading. I've I've written some auto loading. I wrote the one for our website. Our website does some auto loading. I, I hate having requires like a giant block of requires like sitting in a functions.php file or you know like it just looks funny to be just requiring that many files at once. Um, and, and a lot of times they're not even necessary. They're not even going to be used in in this particular request, right? I don't think we do it for most of our plugins either. Yeah, it's probably something we should we should eventually get to. Next question comes from Theron, uh, and he says he he has some API related questions, um, and he asks: Should new plugins use the API to insert new posts or WP insert? So I would assume this is. Uh asking whether we should use the, the REST API and the creation endpoints through that to create new posts, or should we use things like WP insert post? Right, right. I, that's what I, I get as well. I would think it, I mean, it's really going to depend on the context. Uh, I mean, if you are running a process inside of PHP, use WP insert post, because why would, I don't see any reason to fire off a, a remote request to the same API that when you already have full access to say WP insert post and the rest of the, uh, the database classes. If however, you are in the context of a front end request and you want to do it via JavaScript, absolutely use the rest API. Um, if you are doing it between say between applications, so you have one WordPress install and then you have another install, whether it's WordPress or a different one and you need to create content between them, rest API. I mean, that's what, that's one of the things it's, it's built for, but inside of the context of like your, within your plugin zone, PHP files, I don't, I don't see why I would use the rest API. I completely agree with that. All right. Uh, this next one comes from Scott Fennell and he says, I'm working on speeding up our admin Ajax calls. We have many, many plugins, most of which are probably hogging resources. However, I'm having trouble identifying which ones are the worst offenders, since it's difficult to see a meaningful difference when we're talking about 100 milliseconds here or there. Any suggestions to debug this? I understand how to log which functions are calling admin Ajax, but what I want to get a view on is slightly different. Which functions are hooked into the hooks that fire when admin Ajax runs? You see the difference? Stuff like admin init, etc. 
how do you track down performance problems inside of Ajax and figure out which functions are, are tied into admin Ajax hooks? Right. Uh, probably what I would do is probably the wrong thing. <laughs> I think what I've traditionally done is... <laughs> yeah, but probably poorly. I, I mean, there's probably some really good diagnostic tools out there. Um, like query, query monitor would probably be one that would work well for this, right? Um, have you used query monitor? I use it on every single one of my sites all the time. Right. Is it, would it work for this scenario? Uh, possibly. It's going to depend. Um, you're going to be able to see, say, like during an admin init request or like any page load in the admin, which hooks are in there um, and what kind of performance you're seeing. But those may or may not have the same impact as they do inside of an admin Ajax request. Let me, let me give you an example of something that we recently ran into that I, I think can apply here. Now, our, in our case, it wasn't with admin Ajax. It was actually with WP Cron, but the same methods would work. So we were having a site that was, it wasn't sending emails anymore. And it, well, it wasn't sending a particular set of emails. So we had these emails that were supposed to send automatically, say one week before a subscription is due to process a renewal payment. But these emails weren't getting sent. They used to be sent, and then one day they just stop. And we couldn't find any explanation for why. There was, there was no error logs, there's no, there's no uh, errors logged inside of it. the error logs, there's no, there was nothing that we could find. It didn't matter whether um, all the other plugins were deactivated or not. Like if we had EDD running, and in this case, a recurring payments plugin and a software licensing plugin, just three little, three plugins, they wouldn't work. We didn't know why. And this is a site that had been sending these emails fine for years. And so I eventually started doing some digging and I, f I figured out that if I deactivated one of our own plugins, in this case, software licensing, the emails from recurring payments would work fine. And I thought, huh, okay, so that means that you've got some kind of overlap. So I started looking into all of the things that they both did related to cron. And I found two of them. It turns out that there was one uh, for example, our software licensing would run a daily cron job to look for keys that should be expired. And so it would go find expiring keys and mark them as expired. And then the recurring payments plugin would go look for subscriptions that were due to renew and it would send a renewal payment notice. Um, but if software licensing was active, the renewal payment notices wouldn't get sent. But then I also figured out that if I swapped the order so that I made the recurring payments one run before the software licensing one, it worked fine. So this told me that they were both hooking into a same action and one of them was stomping out the other. And what I ended up discovering uh, was basically that the recurrent, the software licensing plugin was doing a query that was pulling in too much data and it was running out of memory silently during, during cron and it was killing the rest, anything that was gonna run later in that same cron job. And the, the reason it happened was because the database on this site had just gotten too big and it couldn't pull in the same amount of data as it used to be able to. There was too much data to pull that it would run out. So to fix it, we just made the query smaller and more efficient and that took care of the problem. So what basically what we had to do and how we found it was going in and using things like the debug bar actions and filters add-on um, to see during a request, what are all of the actions that are hooked in? So then you can say, okay, on admin init, here's all of the things that we have hooked. So then 
let's say that we have this function that is not working. Now remove every action on admin init. There's actually a function called remove all actions and it will deregister all of them. And then you can test the function again. And then if the function works, in this case, sending emails, you know that something within the admin, something tied to admin init is breaking. So then we said, okay, we have all of these things on admin init. Now, what if we just remove 50% of them? Remove everything from this action to this action. Does it work? Good. That means that one of those in the, that first 50% is causing the problem. Now let's remove them one at a time until we find the one that's actually causing the problem. And now we, now we can at least identify where the problem is coming from. So if you're trying to debug performance in Ajax, you could do something similar. First, look at everything that's tying into, into admin init or into one of the, the WP Ajax callbacks. Remove them all using remove all actions. See what kind of performance improvement you have. Then step through and remove them individually. One of the issues why this is pretty tricky to do by just deactivating plugins is that there's a lot of interaction sometimes between plugins. Just deactivating a plugin is not gonna necessarily have the same effect as removing one hook that a plugin adds because you never know how many different interconnection points there are. That, that's how I would do it. I would, I would try to step through those actions. I would find all the actions that are registered and then I would remove all of them, see what kind of improvement you have, add some back in, see what you get, remove them one at a time, and eventually you'll find the slow ones. I hope that kind of made sense. I think it made perfect sense. So, so just to recap though, your tool of choice for finding the bottlenecks with the hooks, what was that called again? Uh, it's the debug bar add-on with actions and filters. So there's debug bar and then there's debug bar actions and filters. And what it allows you to easily do is go in and view all of the actions that are tied to a request, tied to the current page load. And so you can see all of the actions on admin in it, on WP, on plugins loaded, on, on shutdown, all of them. Um, and, and so and then presumably if you, how long each one takes to run, is that right? It doesn't, which is where it gets a little trickier, especially it's tricky during Ajax because you're not necessarily gonna see the same thing during an Ajax request as you will like an admin page load, but it still gives you a good starting point. Right. I think admin Ajax is a little trickier to to debug with with a UI tool like that because the admit the, those calls are kind of happening in the background, right? Well, like, right, but that's why. So with like the debug bar console, the actions and filters add-on, what you're starting with is getting a list of all the actions that are registered, and then say remove them all, fire an Ajax request, see how it works. Add them all back in, right. fire an Ajax request, see how it works. Remove some of them. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Right. Oh, not ideal. <laughs> no, not ideal. Be pain in the ass to do, but it does work. Yeah, I think I think uh, Query Monitor does show you uh, hooks as well. Uh, it's just taking a quick look at the at the screenshots they have, and so it does show them. But I'm not sure how useful. Like I'm not sure if it shows the time that each one takes or anything. I'm not sure if you can get that information out of it. So maybe your way is the only way. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Next question comes from Bob Riley. And he says, hi, guys. Uh, we are considering expanding our existing plugin business by purchasing a free plugin or paid plugin. Regarding a free plugin, 
How does one determine what a good price is? Is there a rule of thumb for price paid to be based on number of active users? Also, if one wished to purchase a paid plugin from another company, is there a general rule for what you would pay for one of those, perhaps a revenue multiplier? Finally, from a negotiation tactics standpoint, do you have any advice for how one would go about approaching a free plugin author or paid plugin creator, specifically how to open the conversation and then broach the topic of a specific offer price? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Thanks for the questions, Bob. This is right up my alley. <laughs> I've done, I, I have acquired a free plugin, but it was kind of, I kind of cheated a bit because it was, it also had a commercial, there was a commercial version of it. So, you know, I got them as a package deal. <laughs> so, I think purchasing yeah. a free plugin is a little bit trickier than a paid one because just trying to find the value proposition. Exactly. And, and what Bob was saying is maybe you could base the price on the number of active users, um, which I don't think is quite right. I think um, what he means is the the number of active installs, I guess, that WordPress.org is showing, which, I mean, that's not a bad metric to go by. That's that's one thing you could use in your consideration. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, man, like to, to, <laughs> to put a value on something that's making no money. Uh, it's really tough. I, I mean, think you have to really look and see what, number one, like what does a plugin do? Um, what is the potential of you, like do you plan to take this free plugin and then make a commercial version of it? Do you want to upsell it to services, upsell um, add-ons? What do you want to do with it? I mean, let, let's just give like a super famous example of Facebook buying Instagram for $1 billion. Instagram didn't have revenue, but they paid a billion dollars for it. Why? Well, they wanted the user base. They wanted the, the audience that came with it. So if you have a plugin that has a massive number of installs and has a very large user base, there, there's a lot of potential there. But how you choose to upsell them is gonna be different from, from plugin to plugin. If you wanna come up with a price for, for you and something that you're considering doing, think about, well, what do you realistically, as with, as with any uh, business purchase, like what do you expect to be able to get back from your investment? I mean, if you pay $5,000 for a plugin, are you doing this because that's what the plugin author wants or because you genuinely believe that you can make 10000 off a plugin? I, I think this boils down to like buying anything that doesn't have a price tag on it. Like if you go, I don't know, if you're out in the world and like you see a car you really like and you're like, I wonder if I can get that guy to sell me that, you know, like it's going to depend like on how willing that person is to depend part with their car right like how much they value their vehicle like you know is it a rare vehicle or did they put a lot of time into it that like they, they feel like they have an emotional connection to it right like all those things go into what the person that's the potential seller you know what their value for that that plug-in or car is and then the the other side of that is like how much the buyer is actually willing to pay. Where where what's their breaking point, right? Like what at what point are they like okay, that's too much. I I can't. I'm walking away. Clearly, w with your example, Pippin, with like with the Instagram thing, clearly <laughs> clearly clearly Facebook was, you know, had put a high value on what they thought it was worth. But also, I'm sure the Instagram guys 
we're not really um, looking to, you know, flip it quickly. And they probably weren't even interested in selling until Facebook waved a ton of money in front of their face, right? Um, yeah, that, I think that's an example. Everything has a price. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think when it comes to purchasing a, a commercial plugin, something that already has revenue to back it up, it's, it's a little bit simpler, at least in terms of coming up with with a price tag that makes sense for both people. I think a general rule of thumb that is typically considered a good price in most cases is a 1.5 multiplier of like the annual revenue. So if you're, if a plugin makes $10,000 a year, 15,000 would always would typically be considered a good, a good valuation. Now that's a general rule of thumb, because if you say, for example, you built a plugin last month and you made $20,000. And so you say, well, it's probably going to make 200,000. Well, you made 20,000 that quickly. That says that you probably have a huge potential for growth if you can launch it and immediately do that. And so a, a 1.5 may not work there. If you have a plugin that has been around for 10 years and you know exactly what it's made every single year, it's a little easier to figure out. The history of the plugin is going to matter a lot here. So like, for example, I sold, I sold one of my plugins, Easy Content Types, uh, in February of last year. And we ended up picking, I think, a, a 1.8 multiplier for the annual revenue. And we, but we had four years of revenue to look at and to see, we know where, where its peak was. We know where its, where its valley was. We know what it's done average. From this time, we know what it should be able to do. Um, whereas if your plugin is two months old, that's a little trickier. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also lots of other factors at play here than just revenue. Um, oh, for sure. E- even for commercial plugins. Um, uh, so, for example, if if uh, if the plugin is is you know five or six years old and has a history of solid revenue and even maybe recurring revenue, um, like that, that's a big. That's a big plus, but also if if the brand of the plugin uh, has a reputation, um, I think that that makes it also stronger. Because uh, but sometimes uh, more difficult too. More difficult for the for the buyer to, to sell. Um, because let's let's say for example that your a, a plugin has a really strong re- um, reputation and a very strong brand, and then somebody wants to come in, and but that somebody is let's just call them an unknown. They're not known within the community or the customer base, um, and they buy it, then they, they, they may be inheriting some of that brand reputation, but they are not coming in with a reputation themselves already. That's true. And I think we, we've, we've definitely seen this happen a few times. And it also goes the other way. Like if somebody with a strong reputation buys a plugin from somebody that does not have a strong reputation or brand, that greatly enhances their brand. I mean, of like, of the plugin being bought. Right. I think one one point five x is a good kind of baseline, I guess. But I think I think that can go up based on other factors as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I don't think um, I would typically go down. You, there's got to be some pretty no. good reasoning for going down. We sold our um, web hosting company. I, I had a web hosting company for several years, and we sold it. Uh, the ty- kind of rule of thumb for that was one x one x annual revenue. That was like the base. That was just typical, um, and then you went up from there. So I, I think it also depends, based on, you know what industry you're in, what products you're talking about. But yeah, I guess for plugins, I guess it would be one point five and up. I guess in terms of tactics to approach people, 
I would just uh, advise to treat people like people. <laughs> Ask them to have a conversation, you know, like just, just, I'd love to talk, uh, you know, to hear what you've been up to. I mean, that that's what I've done in the past. And, and don't go into it like with a hard sell either, right? Just like, be curious, like, how are they doing? Like, what's, uh, what are the, what are their challenges? You know, maybe I think you need to helpful. show a genuine interest in not only yeah. the product but of the team behind it. Uh, I mean, because most successful acquisitions are, it's not just of the product. It may or it may be like an aqua aqua hire where you're you're bringing the team over as well, um, whether that is one person or twenty people. Um, and and you better care. You have to care about people if you want that to work. Should we do one more and then wrap it up? Yes. All right. So Scott uh, Patterson has asked us about hiring developers. So he said, I think it would be great if you did an episode on hiring developers, where to find them, managing developers and projects, how to determine salaries and remote working agreements. Well, we don't have time to do an entire episode today on it, but I think we can still touch on the subject. And uh, if you want to hear more on it, let us know. And we can certainly see about doing a, an in-depth topic on it at some point. So Brad, you've hired quite a few developers. Do you have any quick tips on on it. Yeah, I think I think we have quite different perspectives on this, Pippin, because I I tend to have to like go out seeking the developers <laughs> and advertising jobs, uh, whereas I think I think you have um, kind of hired from within uh, from within the EDD uh, kind of uh, contributor uh, mostly, right? Mm -hmm. Is that yeah? Is that's, that that's generally pretty true. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just speak from my perspective. Um, so. Uh, typically, we uh, I'll write a job post and put it on authenticjobs.com, which which is kind of my go-to. And uh, I, I recently started uh, experimenting with weworkremotely.com, which is the job board that the Basecamp guys set up, I guess, probably years ago now. And then uh, those applications come in just via email. Uh, I don't make them submit any forms or anything. And then, yeah, we s kind of sort through them. and Or I sort through them. I I read every application myself. That's something Matt Mullenweg, I believe, still does for, for Automatic. He still reads all of the job applications to Automatic. Um, I've heard him say that fairly recently as well. So I'm, every time he says it, and it, he's still doing it, I'm still shocked because... <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, how much, how much work that must be. I mean, he's he's probably got really good systems in place to filter out the bad ones and stuff. But, but nonetheless, he's he's probably still reading uh, reading a lot of applications. So I, I that that kind of inspires me to you know to keep doing it um, as long as I can, and uh, just yeah, and just be really careful about who who we bring onto the team. I think it's super important. I think just like how uh, when you approach somebody to to buy a part of their business or a, something they've created, people matter. And in hiring, I think people matter proper, probably more than just about anything, at least assuming that you have any kind of company that cares about people, uh, which I, can't, I cannot imagine how you could have a company that doesn't care about people until maybe you get so large and whatever, different subject. But so for me, one of the most important things is we have to work, like we have to be able to, I wanna be able to sit in a room with you and, and and work together 
Now, we work remotely. I mean, we're all across the, the world. But if I would not want to sit with you in the same car for five hours or sit with you at dinner or sit with you in an office and work, we're not going to be compatible. And we're not even going to have a discussion about hiring. So number one, we have to be compatible on a personal level, which for that reason, I rarely hire someone I don't know. And well, I haven't yet with the, with maybe one or two exceptions for like contract work in a way that is probably severely limiting because it makes our pool of potential people to hire much smaller. But at the same time, unlike five to 10 years ago, the number of people that we can know, thanks to things like Twitter and Facebook and and various other online communication, the people that we know are a network of people that we have personal connections with. Not necessarily that we know intimately, but we've had personal relations with like, we've sat down, had dinner together, we've gone to conferences together. It's actually much, much larger than, than say five years ago. So we still have a large number of people to pull from, but if I'm looking to hire somebody as for a developer role, a support role or any other role, I want to, I want to be able to know you personally. My rule now is not only do I have to be like want to sit in a car with you for three hours, but I have to be okay and comfortable with inviting you to my house and sleeping in my house for a few days. If I'm not comfortable with that, there's no way you're coming to work on my team. So that's one rule that we have. I guess we could touch on one more thing in Scott's question. Um, maybe with the remote working agreements part. We have people in the UK. We have people in the US, I'm here in Canada, we have other people in Canada, um, but that's it. So it's mainly we're dealing with three different countries. Uh, well, actually that's not it. We've got one, well, one guy's in Ukraine, but he's also, you know, American. So he has like bank accounts and stuff in the US. So I technically still in the US <laughs> when it comes to legal and financial things. So anyways, uh, we treat everyone as contractors, so everyone outside of Canada as contractors, uh, and then people that are full-time. So they're full-time contractors, and then the people in Can within Canada are employees. You know, they, we have to pay you know employ employer taxes and all that kind of stuff uh, for those people uh, to be to be on the up and up. So that's that's basically how we do it. Um, other, you know, the other only other option would be to set up an entity in the other countries, and then be able be able to treat um, those workers as employees, uh, which is not realistic when you're talking about just a handful of right. people. Uh, the amount of overhead, not at, all, not at our scale, typically. Yeah, you have to be. I think the minimum, bare minimum, would be ten people in one location to to warrant that kind of setup. Uh, and even then, it, that seems like a lot, probably more work than it's worth. You, you have people outside the U.S., right, Pippin? Yes. Uh, we have two in Britain, one in Germany, one in Canada, two in New Zealand. Uh, and so we have a pretty similar setup where if you are in the U.S., you, we uh, legally classify you as an employee typically. So in terms of like we pay any like payroll taxes, those are all paid directly out of the out of the company, things like that. Report directly to the IRS, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you live international, um, then you are like in terms of as far as the IRS is concerned, you are a contractor. We still give you the same employee privileges. You are still considered an employee of the company. It's only on paperwork, like because it's that's yeah, that's just the way that we do it. Right. Interesting. 
I, I so I've struggled with this a little bit. Um, so, for example, vacation time. We recently reshuffled things a little bit um, with the guys in the UK because they they got a little worried that it wouldn't look to the government like they were actually a contra- contractor if they were getting paid the exact same amount every month and had vacation time. They that the government would start to classify them as an employee and you know turn things upside down on us. <laughs> so so we basically took away vacation and and then just increased their pay. So they, they when they take a, t- a day off, they don't get paid for that day, but they just make more every day that they do work. So that like when they submit an invoice, it just looks a little bit more like they're like like they're a contractor. Um, we still keep track of their vacation time to make sure that they're you know taking enough time off and stuff like that. I, the world is just not set up for this yet, it seems, right? We're just kind of like making it up as we go um, and doing our best, you know? So it's the way, it's the way I run my company. Make it up <laughs> as we go and fake it until you make it. Yeah, I guess so. All right. We should probably wrap I think it up. We could, we could probably, there's a lot more we could touch on hiring developers, especially remote team members. There's a whole lot of interesting nuances about it. Uh, and so maybe we'll touch it again soon to maybe pique anybody's interest. I think figuring out uh, salaries with between countries is really fascinating when you look into like where a company is located versus where an employee is located and taking all of those different things into account. Really fascinating and sometimes philosophically gray areas. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's for another another episode. Oh, man. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that actually because I've really struggled with that in the past. So maybe next episode we'll we'll uh, we'll dig into that one. Sounds good. Cool. Well, if anybody has any other subjects you'd like to hear hear about, uh, get in touch with us. Send them in from the website at applyfilters.fm. Uh, whether it's a simple question that we can answer in a minute or two, or if it's a really in depth topic that you would like to cover an entire episode on, let us know. We'd love to hear your feedback. Awesome. Talk to you next time. All right. Cheers, folks.